Hello everyone and welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum. I'm your host, Cody Wagner. Here we'll discuss everything related to the wide world of automobiles, including culture, news, games, interviews, and events. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey, hey everyone, welcome to this week's Sunday special. This week we are once again delving into the weird and wonderful world of motorsport, except we're not going to be talking about lies, deceit, and cheating, but of circumstantial success, but mostly failure. This article comes from Drive Tribe from a friend of mine, Stane Passpont, who is a big motorsport buff, like far, most people are far more than me, but this guy certainly so. This article delves into the motors to sorry into the Maserati Grand Sport Light GT3. That means we are going back only as far as the mid 2000s. So not as far as we went with the Road and Track article, but still more than what more than 10 years ago now. Anyway, though enough babbling. Let's get into this piece. In early 2003, Maserati announced they would finally return to motor racing after a 12-year drought. Their previous efforts with the Group A Gibble were anything but successful. Numerous mechanical failures and a lackluster pace bore a bleak resemblance to the road-going counterpart. In 1993, Maserati had been bought by Fiat, who promptly went to work re-establishing the brand after its, image was on, after its image was on the brink of ruination. It took another five years for Maserati to finally build something that wasn't based on the ancient bi-turbo from 1983. Sorry, 1981! By now, they had 20 different versions of it. And no, that isn't a typo. The new car, called the three, called the 3200 GT, remember the weird kind of boomerang taillights, that's the car we're talking about, looked infinitely more modern than the plethora of bi-turbo clones that came before. It did, however, feature the same 3.2-liter twin-turbo V8 from the Quattroporte, which was, in turn, a slightly stretched-out engine swapped by turbo. All ties with the bi-turbo era were finally severed with the arrival of the coupe in 2001. By then, the other Fiat-owned mark, Ferrari, had taken over, had taken control of its former rival. This meant the coupe got an all-new engine in the form of the jointly developed F136 NA 4.2-liter V8. It's this new coupe, also known as the 4200 GT, or did they call it the 4200 GT, that formed the base for Maserati's return to motorsport in 2003, when they announced a new one-mate cup series, the Maserati Trofeo. Not unlike what Lamborghini does, and not unlike the Ferrari Challenge either. Or Challenge Series, I should say. The Trofeo was based on the top-of-the-range model, which featured the Cambrio Corsa manual transmission, which was hydraulically operated and electronically managed. The two pedals on the wheel, on the wheel, meant shifting gears were generously dubbed as F1-style shifting by the marketing department. The modification stayed relatively tame. A basic engine remap bumped, bumped the power from 385 horsepower to 412 horsepower. Despite the addition of a roll cage, weight was brought down from 1,670 kilograms to 1,370. Sorry, from 1,670 kilograms to 1,370 kilograms. Or to put it into perspective, a Viper, which is about 3,300 and a bit pounds, puts it at about 1,540-ish kilograms. That means we're talking about a car that is maybe 2,900, maybe 2,800 pounds. So, significantly lighter because 1,670 kilograms puts the 4200 GT at 3,700 pounds there or thereabouts. So, a, a substantial weight loss. That weight loss would make anyone on Weight Watchers jealous. Nobody was actually allowed to buy one, though. 
Instead, for 120,000 euros, you could subscribe to a year's worth of racing. Seems like quite a hefty price, but when you consider this gave you an entry into two preseason test sessions and all seven races, including a small crew that took care of your car and many more, it was actually quite a good deal. Maserati even booked a hotel and arranged dinner for you, and one guest for the whole race weekend. Almost sounds like a bargain. The formula was an instant success, as the full 26 car grid traveled around Europe, acting as a support series for various championships including DTM and Formula 1. The racing bug had bitten Maserati, and they wanted more, so work started on evolving the cup car into something more capable that could be entered into other international events. Maserati managed to squeeze a little more power out of the stock engine, making the total figure 430 horsepower. They stuck with the Cambrio Corsa transmission as well, but completely reprogrammed it in order to get the fastest shifts possible. The most significant changes were done to the bodywork. Thanks to the use of composite materials and a further crash diet interior-wise, the total weight was brought down to only 1,150 kilograms, or maybe 2,700 pounds. Around there, which again is extremely light, especially for a car like this. A whopping half ton less than the road car. The new lighter fender flares accompanied the completely new suspension setup in making the car significantly wider. The rear wing stayed the same, but was now supported by enormous side end plates, giving significant aerodynamic gains. The new car, simply dubbed the Maserati Coupe Trofeo Lite, was the most extreme evolution of the new coupe. Because the coupe was the first Maserati to be sold in the United States in years, the decision was made to make, it, to make its first competitive racing outing the 2004 24 Hours of Daytona, the first round of the Grand Am Road Racing Championship. Two cars were entered in the GT class by Scuderia Ferrari of Washington and Rizzi Competizione. The former was backed by the official Maserati dealer of Washington and the latter by the Houston dealership. They were up against a few Corvettes, Ferraris, and M3 GTRs, but the main enemy was an armada of Porsche 911s, most of which were upgraded cup cars, just like the coupe was. The cars qualified 10th and 20th in class. Not the best result, but definitely not the worst. The Houston car had an, had an uneventful race finishing 10th in class in the race. For a moment, it looked like the Trofeo Light of the Washington crew was having a dream debut as it briefly took the class lead in the early stages. For the first six hours, the new kid on the block proceeded to battle for a spot on the podium. That was until it went off track in the rain, breaking a suspension part in the process. The massive amounts of time lost in the pits relegated it to 15th in class at the end of the race. The Trofeo Light was far from the only car to suffer in the torrential downpour though, which is just a little caption under the image. The Trofeo Light's American racing career never really took off after that, as Scuderia Ferrari of Washington raced the Maserati in only a select few races in the next two seasons. Bringing their older Ferrari 360 Modena Challenge out of retirement proved to be a more successful strategy in the end. The Maserati had more success on its home turf, as a few competed in the Italian GT Championship. It even managed to win one of the very first championships racing under the brand new GT3 class rules. That wasn't a hard-fought victory, however, as only a handful of cars were entered in that class, most of which, funnily enough, were Trofeo Lights. Overall victory was never achieved though, as that honor went to its new and somewhat adopted brother, the dastardly Maserati MC20 GT1. The Enzo-based monster immediately proved to be far more competitive than the coupe in the Italian GT Championship, the FIA GT Championship, and 
just about darn well any other race it entered. All the attention quickly shifted towards the MC-12 instead of the Trofeo Light. Which is a lot, which is quite a lot like what happened to the Shelby Daytona Coupe once the Ford GT40 came along. And the, the greater irony is that the Trofeo Light was an FMR, I said that in quotes car, that got overshadowed by a mid-engine car, which is exactly what happened to the gosh darn Daytona Coupe. These mid-engine buggers are stealing the light from my FMR heroes, I hate it. Although, I don't really care about the Grand Sport that much. So far, the Trofeo Light had been in somewhat of an identity crisis, having been entered as a GT in the US, a GT2 in Italy in 2004, and as a GT3 in 2005. Luckily, in 2006, its fate was finally sealed as a GT3 car with the arrival of the brand new FIA European GT3 Championship. By now, a sportier version of the coupe had been released called the Grand Coupe. To promote this new model, Maserati quickly changed the name of the Coupe Trofeo Light to Grand Sport Light. On the 10th of January 2006, the Maserati received its homologation number, GT3001. It was officially the very first FIA certified GT3 car. That honor almost went to the Viper Competition Coupe, which almost got homologated on the same day. Dang you, Maserati. <laughs> but that's, that's a cool bit of history. I'm glad there's some Viper stuff in here. That's pretty awesome. Racing Team AF Course would field three Grand Sport Lights in the five-round long season, with each round consisting of two 60-minute races that acted as a support series for the FIA GT Championship running GT1 and GT2 cars. AF course were no strangers to Maserati as they actually provided valuable help in developing the, get this, MC12 GT1 and Trofeo race cars. They also maintained the latter at all the race weekends. It's who you know, man. <laughs> the AF course squad was joined by two more Grand Sport lights entered by Privateers GPC Sport for the first round at Silverstone. Despite the new balance of performance system or BOP or BOP, used to make the playing field as even as possible. The Maserati was going to be down on power no matter what. It had well over 100 horsepower less than the Viper and Aston Martin DBRS9. I think it's DBR9. Maybe it is. It had well over 100 less horsepower than the Viper and Aston Martin DBRS9 powerhouses. This was reflected in qualifying as the fastest Maserati of the bunch, the number 77 of Alessi and Sarai, perhaps, sorry if I got your name wrong, only managed to qualify in 25th place. Despite the poor qualifying, Alessi managed to make up several positions on the first two laps until all that progress was lost after a spin into the gravel trap at Stowe. Making matters worse, he repeated to spin again at the exact same spot on the next lap. At the very least, all five cars managed to finish the race, managed to finish the first race with the best result being P16 for the AF Corsa. Oh, it's Corsa? Okay. Number 76 of Palma and Sperati. Again, apologies if I got your name wrong. That didn't carry over into the second race, though, as two of the three AF Corsa cars were forced to retire. The number 77 due to spinning off track yet again, and the number 76 due to an early race collision with one of the Porsches. The remaining Maseratis finished in 23rd place, 30th, and 32nd place. While the Maseratis disappointed, the race itself didn't. GT3 racing couldn't have gotten a better start thanks to the numerous on-track battles and the wide variety of cars competing. It would take a further two months of waiting, however, as the next round was in early July in Germany at the Arschleben racetrack. I probably got that horribly wrong. 
From this round forward, only three AF Corsa fielded Maseratis remained as GPC Sport retired from the championship. Sub-Ultimo qualifying saw the AF Corsa... Is it Corsa or Corsa? Anyway, saw the AF Corsa... I'm just going to say it like that from now on. Squad take up 17th position, 20th position, and 29th position. Although the highest placed car of Alessi Sarai was forced to start from the back of the grid due to unknown reasons. I smell something fishy there. That seemed to ignite a fighting spirit as they battled their way through the grid in the first race to finish a very respectable 7th place. Meanwhile, the number 76 car of Palma Sparati finished 18th place, while the number 78 car driven by Casa Marti, sorry if I got that wrong, was forced to retire due to crash damage. Race 2 saw better results for Palma and Sparati as they finished 12th. Casa and Marty couldn't seem to get a break as they got tangled up in another accident, forcing them to retire for the second race as well. The number 77, meanwhile, seemed to have developed an odd habit. It was either decently competitive or it spun off track. In race 2, it did the latter and was unable to rejoin the track, leading to another DNF for the AF Corsa crew. Only two cars were brought to Spa Frankershaw for the third round of the season. The first race saw a very decent team result as the car as the cars managed to finish 13th and 15th. That was until the Sparati Palma car was given a time penalty. Their pit stop was faster than 75 seconds, which is the minimum time allowed. The penalty bumped them back to 24th place. Undeterred by the now unfortunate result, Sparati and Palma drove the number 76 to another 13th place result in race 2. And now they were allowed to keep that position thanks to a clean pit stop. Kase and now and new driver Judici, sorry I got that wrong, couldn't improve and fell back to 19th place. All three cars were reunited again at the penultimate round at Dijon Prinois in France. The number 77 car was now driven by newcomers Bellin and Conte, while Kase was now accompanied by the third newcomer, Marty. The newcomers didn't exactly impress with a 26th and 28th position finish in the first race. Luckily, Sparati and Palma managed to save AF Corsa's reputation by finishing 13th again. Three times in a row, not considering the penalty at Spa. The number 76 car was on a roll as Sparati and Palma finished 10th in the second race, their best result yet. Newcomer Marty, together with the experienced Kase, finally pulled through and finished 14th. The other newbies failed to make up for the first race result as now they didn't finish at all. Conte failed to avoid a spinning Lamborghini, which clipped the front of his car in the process. Only two cars were present again for the final round at Mugello. Veterans Palma and Sparati in the number 76 in car number 76, and two more newcomers, Belling and Demegni, in number 77. Despite horrible conditions, Sparati and Palma once again were the most successful Maserati drivers with another top 10 finish in race 1. Despite car 77 being driven by new drivers, it still managed to spin out for the fourth time this season. Luckily, it kept pointing in the right direction in the second race with a 21st place result. The more fortunate number 76 car couldn't improve and finished in the midfield again in position 17. Or in 17th, 17th position. The end of the 2006 FIA GT3 European Championship was also the end of factory-backed Maserati Grand Sport Lite GT3s. Despite these sub-average results overall, the head of FA of no of AF Corsa, Amato Ferrari, praised the reliability of the Maseratis. An odd statement at first, but true when you consider every retirement was due to an accident or off-track excursion. The number 77 Maserati was the one that suffered the most. 
thanks to numerous spins that resulted in several retirements. One retirement even came at the hands of a different car spinning in front of it. While one car seemed like it suffered from some kind of curse, the other managed to perform consistently in the midfield pack. Not bad considering the blatant power disadvantage. While most early GT3 cars it competed against were descendants of monstrous GT1 machinery, the Maserati was the opposite. The evolution of a simple cup car managed to finish in the top 10 on several occasions. More importantly, it never broke down in the process. The horrible bi-turbo era was well and truly over. That's got to be one of the best. Started from the bottom. Now we're at the mid. <laughs> now we're at the mid stories I've read about motorsport. I mean, it's the first one, but still, that's that's quite a story. I mean, a simple cup car, then getting upgraded into a GT3 car and doing quite well. That's pretty cool. I mean, look at the Viper GTSR, the Gen 5. That didn't start out as a cup car. That was made from the get-go as a what would have been at the time something like a GT, not quite a GT3 car, but not too far from it. It, it sucks that Maserati couldn't have done better, and I have to wonder why one of the team's cars kept spinning all the time, and or why the driver kept spinning that car all the time, but someone was saying in the comments that if Maserati wants to revive itself, it needs to get back into motorsport, and you know, I'm not so, I'm not so sure how I feel about that, but I will say that I never really cared for the 3200 GT or the 4200 GT, so hearing that they actually did relatively well, in motorsport is actually kind of a surprise to me because I would have expected the car to do way, way worse. But that's just, it's just another example that as weird as a car might be in its road going variant, that doesn't mean it's going to be a crappy motorsport car. It could actually do fairly well because what, what do you do when you make a race car? Well, you strip everything out and you add all the best bits. So while the road going suspension might be crap, the racing suspension might be perfectly fine. But it's interesting that we delved into this time period because a while ago I was looking at gen 2 chrysler viper gtsrs for i was doing a little bit of research and it's just kind of funny that i just can't help but think oh wow this was in the exact same time period although i i do have to say darn you maserati for beating out the viper competition coupe as the first fia certified gt3 car but also good on you for making a semi-competitive gt3 car when you had a hundred less horsepower like you were at a woeful disadvantage and you started with a cup car like you know the the porsche came in gt4 cup car okay imagine that and then take and then turning it into a gt3 car like that i was talking to the guy actually on slack a while ago who made this article and he was saying that people don't really understand just how fast actual race cars are so if you think well what's so what's so amazing about taking a cup car and then making it a gt3 car I think I'd imagine that a GT3 car, in terms of pure lap time, would be about two or three seconds faster than a cup car. More power and significantly less weight. And to explain how significant that is, how, how significant three seconds is, that would be maybe you'd have a quarter of a track lead ahead of someone else. Like you'd be three or four quarters ahead of someone else. You wouldn't be in sight at all. You wouldn't even be able to hear them, assuming the car wasn't just ridiculously loud. But three seconds isn't a minor difference at all. Especially when you're going flat out. Once you reach your talent wall, let's say, the only gains you're going to make in lap time are tenths. So let's say you do a 30.7 lap time. Well, then your next fastest may be a 30.6 or a high 30.6. Or let's say you did a 30.772. Well, then your next fastest might be a 30.724. Once you start hitting your talent wall for, for skill, it's all tenths for improvements. So... Assuming both cars were driven by the same driver, this and that driver was going flat out for both cars, a three-second difference flat out is a massive difference. That's 
That's a pure machinery difference. That's why that's so significant. That's That would be like one guy being able to bench press 300 pounds and the next guy being able to bench press 400 pounds. You say, well, it's only 100 pounds. It's like, no, that guy has significantly more muscle to be able to bench press 100, uh, 100 more pounds. That's the kind of difference we're talking about here. A few seconds seems like nothing, but no, you're talking about the kind of difference where it's like, that's 100 more pounds that person can lift. And that's not insignificant. But again, that's why it's amazing that Maserati managed to even get midfield with a car that had 100 less horsepower and one that started out in life as a simple cup car. A cup car, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Pirelli GT4 America Racing series. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. A lot of those Chevrolet Camaro GT4 cars, the Cayman GT4 cars, the Mercedes AMG GT4 car, and some of the R8s. That's like, not the Porsche cup cars, but those I think, some of them are actually called cup cars. That's what they're like. So those those cars, for people who don't know, they're essentially, let's say you get a Camaro Z01 Elite from the dealership. From the dealership. And so what you do, you take the entire interior out, you add a roll cage, take as much weight out of it as possible, but you more you add some racing suspension, but you don't change the track, you don't change you basically although I don't think they run the full power of those cars, but you basically just make those cars into race cars. You lighten them, you add a roll cage, whatever, but you don't do much beyond that. So a GT3 car is that, but you take it further. So you widen the body, you add more downforce, you take even more weight out, so on and so forth. It's just a more extreme version of a normal cup car, but it's more extreme to the tune of maybe three seconds a lap faster. Again, it's not insignificant. It's a big difference. So with all that said, though, I have to commend Maserati for taking a, a quote-unquote lowly cup car and turning it into a fairly competitive racing machine, at the very least competitive enough when driven properly not being spun out all the time to make it into the midfield pack. That's pretty cool. Although it is, once again, it's a shame that the MC-12 overshadowed what, well, at the time when it was called the Trofeo Light. It's, it's a shame that it overshadowed the Trofeo Light, but at the same time, it was just more competitive. It was just more competitive, so that's not a surprise. But it's interesting that Maserati had their own Ford-Shelby moment where Ford wanted to get into Le Mans, so they started with the Daytona Coupe, and then the GT40 came along, and it was like, yeah, nah, no more Daytona Coupes. All GT40s of the GT40 stole the show from the Daytona Coupe. Because if you remember, for those, once again, who don't know, they're especially classic motor racing history. So the Shelby Cobra, essentially, started out in life as a British sports car called the AC Ace. Then Carroll Shelby went to AC and said, okay, I can make it more powerful. I can make this more competitive and faster. I can get a Ford V8, stuff it in here, and then there you go. And so that's how the Shelby Cobra came to be. And they started with the Ford 289 V8. So not the wide-body Cobras that you see. It was a normal, narrow-body Cobra just with a bigger engine. So then Ford wanted to go and take on Le Mans. And what they found out when they tried to take the Cobras there is that due to the fact that they were open top, their top speed was limited, and most of the Ferraris that were running were closed top, so they had a higher top speed even though they had less power. So Ford was like, okay, well, we have to do the same thing now. So Shelby calls in... Well, they, there's a few competitions, because there's a few different versions, actually, of the Daytona coupe that exists, one from AC, one from Shelby themselves, but we'll go with the Shelby version for now. So Pete Brock was called in, makes a Daytona coupe, even though it has the weird cam tail design, which was just completely alien at the time, but it turns out it worked. It was quite fast. And so to go even faster, what they were going to do was they were going to shove 
a 427 V8 into the day into the Daytona Coupe and call it the the Super Coupe. And they actually Pete Brock actually changed the aerodynamics to suit the bigger engine more. But then the G the Ford GT the GT40 I should say came along at that time and Ford said no we don't want this Daytona Super Coupe we want the GT. So the Super Coupe never really got to race never really got its five seconds of fame or its five minutes of fame because it got overshadowed. Even though Pete Brock believed that, because the, he said, I was I, I was either watching a video, I was reading an article, that the Daytona Coupe was actually a bit faster on the straights. And what he wanted to do was put the GT40 brakes on the Daytona Coupe, and he believed that car would have been faster. He believed the Daytona Coupe with GT40 brakes and a bigger engine would have been faster than the GT40, but because the, G, the Daytona Coupe wasn't purely a Ford effort, Compared to the GT40, which was, Ford was like, nope, shelve that, and then do the GT40. So, this story doesn't go as far as that, but it does have a very similar, at the very least midway, it has a very similar story of a mid-engine, more competitive mid-engine car overshadowing the company's first efforts. Even though, in both cases, the first effort were, were was more than respectable. There were more than respectable efforts that... Even though the Daytona Coupe was more, I, w I would say, more successful than the 4200, or what would they call it, the Grand Sport Trofeo Light? Is that what they called it? The Grand, either way, the Grand Sport Light, it wasn't, the Grand Sport Light wasn't as successful. It still did fairly well, despite definitely being at a disadvantage because it wasn't, it wasn't a GT1 car made slower. Anyway, though, I hope you all enjoyed. What do you think of that story? If you enjoyed this, then please like the episode, share the episode, and follow the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Hitting the little notification bell, then all notifications. That way you'll be notified every time I upload. If you want to listen to this podcast on the road, but don't have or want the pod be mobile app, well then just boot up Spotify. Well, I say boot up Spotify, but yeah, boot up Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Type in Cody's Car Conundrum and then choose the episode you want to listen to. I want to say shout out to Stain Postpont for writing this article awesome article i love this story i hope you all enjoyed it i will leave a link to the original article in the description below i will see you all next time you've just listened to me probably ramble about some cars if i'm being honest if you've enjoyed me passionately talking about lumps of metal on wheels then why don't you follow me on twitter at cody car c-o-n-u-n-d-r-m or check out my website www.codyscarconundrum.com for articles and other car related content if you have any questions or would like to become a sponsor, send an email to drtaffy777 at gmail.com and put sponsor in the subject line. Make sure to follow me here or any other platform so you don't miss out on more full throttle content. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode.